Driving Culture Forward. This is Hype Beast Radio. This is Ben Rosen. I'm here today with artist, creator, filmmaker, what else? Shoe designer. How many other things do you have on your on your plate right now? But Daniel Arsham, thank you for making some time, sitting down with us today. Sure, my pleasure. Yeah. So, um, you know, you've got a pretty crazy week. You've got the Lunar Garden stuff coming up. I know you got uh, a future relic in the works, and you just got off of your short film, Hourglass, which is kind of where I wanted to start, because I think the funniest thing for me is that the central conflict of that film is literally between you and someone like me, is with an interviewer. Sure. It's really, <laughs> I, I feel like you have a hard time either, like, explaining, or you definitely have, like, a... Is explaining yourself the hardest part of what you do? To, like, no, impress? it's actually not. Um, and in many ways, you know, that that film was, uh, and that interview in the film was staged. So even though the film feels somewhat um, documentary style, uh, it was all scripted. And, right. you know, part of it is playing with people's expectations about what a documentary scenario, you know, looks and feels like and creating a little bit of um, tension yeah. with that. Yeah, and I definitely think that there was like sort of this conflict where it was like you're getting asked questions like you work a lot with time, and right? Then it's kind of like, like abstract questions. That yeah, are and difficult I feel like that's answer. also it's a result of the fact that a lot of your work deals with heady, heavy concepts, like more specifically like time and space, or like your two, in my opinion, like your two biggest focuses, right? Sure. And so, going off of the contents of that film. Let's start with a sneaker question. What was the significance? Why did you choose the Adidas New York silhouette in particular? I know there's a vignette in there, but like you said, it's Yeah, I mean, when I started uh, speaking to the team at Adidas about, you know, which silhouette I wanted to focus on, I went back into the archive and was I was really looking for something that um, I remembered that I, that I had. Um, and I didn't really know what that was until I saw it. You know, it was really about um, sort of remembering this this shape and this icon. Um, and also, uh, you know, as you saw in the end of the film, um, the story is, is continuing. Yeah. So we have a couple of other things in the works, and I wanted something that focused on the past. Um, we're working on something that's more about now, uh, which, will, which will come out at some point, um, but something that I could really tell a story with. Um, and you know the the New York ended up being that. Yeah, and so I I really like the idea of you being the only fine artist on the Adidas roster as well. They haven't really, you know, branched out in that sphere as much. But I definitely think that, you know, I was wondering if you thought that there was anything that you know the sneaker business could learn from the art world as well as vice versa. Is there any sort of like, is there any cross pollination as someone that's worked on both sides of the fence now? I mean, it's interesting because this whole project to me felt like less about a sneaker project and more about making this film in which the sneaker was like a prop, right? Mm -hmm. In some ways, quite similar to the way that I've approached um, Future Relic, you right. know, this, this kind of ongoing film project um, that has these props in it that are very evocative and, you know, I've, I love film. It's been something that's influenced me and um, kind of a, a favorite pastime. And I always thought about what it would be like to own a, a prop from, you know, one of my favorite uh, films. Like a Kubrick movie or whatever, something sure. in the background. Sure, And, you know, Future Relic was very much a part of that. And as, the, as that project develops, um, you know, we have... I haven't really talked about this much, but we have a whole section of this film that ha I haven't released yet that mm -hmm. we shot with Mahershala Ali um, at the, it was like the middle of last year. So I'm considering now what 
what's going to happen with that section. It's a whole um, middle part of the film with Mahershala and uh, Juliette Lewis is in that as wow. well. So we'll see. Maybe and that's part going. of the Hourglass trilogy, or is that no, a that's future part relic of Future thing? Relic? Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, cool. And wow, that's I had no idea that was going to happen. Um, it's funny because we shot all of this stuff before Moonlight, before you know, really any of uh, the, this big moment that he's had. And when he was um, when he was shooting Future Relic with us, he was shooting House of Cards and Moonlight at all at the time. same time. So he was shooting House of Cards in Baltimore, flying down to Miami to shoot Moonlight, and then doing these overnights with us in uh, Jersey at the um, the Saarinen building that we shot at. And I was, you know, talking to him about this afterwards, like, how the hell did you manage? Yeah, how, how did you three, manage that time? Three very different characters. Um, he's a the guy is a, a one of the more talented um people that i've ever come you know across and uh such a cool cool guy and very devoted to his craft and and you've got like a, a really cool like a roster of collaborators i would say too because i mean you worked with james franco for the future relic series before as well right yeah how did those and, and pharrell on the the travel uh, mm -hmm. what's the name of the uh the play it's an opera i believe rules of the game right and yeah. that's traveling the world right now so how how do you go about do you, do you collaborate with just friends? How does it work? Are they mostly organic? I didn't. Or? I mean, certain people uh, start out as friends and and uh, become collaborators, and other people, you know, I didn't know Mahershala or Juliet Lewis before. Um, both of them were introduced to me through film contacts, and uh, you know, they've they've become friends after that. But I, this idea of collaboration, in some ways, is very foreign to the type of work that I make here in the studio, which. You know, a lot of the work is very, um, I would say, self-motivated and self-driven, right? I kind of define the aesthetic of what I make. And in film and in, in, in theater, you rely on a whole host of talented people. Cast who, and crew. The cast and crew and, and people who are masters of a craft that is so foreign to me, right? Um, you know, I worked for many years um, as a stage designer uh, for Merce Cunningham and he had a process of collaboration that I I took a lot from and I learned a lot from and his process was very much about um, trusting other people to execute what they do best and sort of leaving them to it, right? I wouldn't say that I do that exactly <laughs> in all of the, the projects, but I try to I try to work out and seek out the best people um, to execute Part of parts of these visions. Yeah, I also think that one of the reasons why, like, when you collaborate with someone, it ends up being like kind of an event, is because this this space, the studio that we're in, is sort of secretive, and you have cultivated this sort of like like a cult of secrecy. Really, it's like the future relics are mm -hmm. you, you unveil them, right. and then so much so that people kind of feverishly look in the background of your Instagram posts trying to find them, right? Yes. Has, have, They've uh, already that, figured out what the next one is. They, they cracked the case already? I haven't confirmed that they but have. But there's someone in the Instagram comments. Oh, <laughs> is that part of the fun? Like, do you like to tease things out? Is it deliberate? Or is it I just mean, like people started, have a sharp eye? I started, I think, eye? with Future Relic 6, where, and part of it, you know, when, when Instagram stories started, I'll do that in the studio sometimes. I'm not always paying attention to what's in the background. Yeah. Um, and it really was a kind of accident of revealing something. Uh, but, you know, people piece together between the coordinates that are on the box, which is this kind of location of discovery, the weight and the size, and other sort of things that I've uh, 
you know, inadvertently uh, clued people into, they've discovered what they You've are. You've created a bunch of online Sherlock Holmeses, basically. Yes. Like and like I, I enjoy that, and I'm sure, you know, other people do. But even, like, friends of mine, uh, you know, they ask what it's going to be, and I haven't told anyone because it's, it kind of spoils it for them. It's part of the fun. Yeah. Yeah, and it's part of the film rollouts have always kind of had that same sort of, like, you'll know when it's time for you to know. Yeah, and, you know, part of the, the whole um, experience with the object is mixed up with all of that, right. right? And if you remove some of that, the experience is a little bit dampened. Yeah, and I, I kind of like the that one of the future relics is, is specifically a camera, and then you've also you've taken to Instagram very well as, like, someone that documents. As, it's like a diary almost, mm-hmm. I would say, right? Do you... How would you describe your use of social media at this point like you said like there are you have like fans that are combing through stuff and doing detective work but you know how do you approach it do you see it as kind of a note-taking thing is it a diary or is it a self-promotional tool i think it's a window into what i'm thinking about um there are times that i'll post images that i've uh that i've taken um in my own photography and a lot of it is obviously about my work so I've also found it to be a very sort of efficient and elegant way to communicate with people who wouldn't otherwise see my work, right? They live in places that don't have museums or galleries or maybe they just don't want to go to those places. Um, And it makes the work a little bit more um, open to everyone. Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of my... I went to uh, the one that was in the Periton Gallery uptown earlier this year with the... uh, like the, the cave cavern. of purple, yeah, the cavern. That was incredible, and it's like it is one of those things. that's like, it, I guess the word is Instagrammable. Because mm-hmm. when you're in it, it's it's a space. It's colored in a certain way, and one of the, the funny th- thing is, I've been making work like that for before Instagram existed, and now it's become a thing that you can call it something. But right, yeah, know, I feel like it's reverse. It's more about I've. I've always made space that I felt was about experience, about moving through a space, and about the experience of seeing an exhibition as a kind of story mm-hmm. that unfolds and that le- does lend itself quite well to image taking and, mm-hmm. and image making. And visual storytelling, I think, yeah. is sort of like because of the films that accompany some of these things sure. that kind of narrate or like diegetically explain like mm-hmm. what's going on in it. And one of the things I think Instagram doesn't capture is like the sense of scale. Like I think that that's the one thing where unless you know you're there, you can't really process it because I feel like the beach is a perfect example where like you could see a photo of someone in a ball pit and think, oh, right. but then when you see it and it's literally the size of the entire gallery, it's kind of, you know, there's, there's a moment of awe there. And I was wondering what draws you to the projects of that kind of scale? Because you do, you will inhabit an entire, your, your exhibit in Moscow that's coming up is supposed to be massive, right? Is it... What draws I mean, you to those large In projects? some cases, it's an opportunity. And in other cases, um, uh, talking about the beach specifically, we know that a shift in scale outside of the everyday is something that can provoke awe and wonder. And when we're given an opportunity to create something, I'm often saying we need to make it that, but it needs to be, you know, on a, on a much larger scale in order to have the impact. And, you know, even though the beach, the original one was in a 10,000 square foot space, we added mirrors to the end of it to make it even Infinite. that much, you know, the illusion of it that much larger. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that my work 
shares uh, with Snarkitecture is this desire to um, make the everyday, make things that we're sort of used to, that we've seen before, uh, sort of step outside of that and be magical and be playful. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we, we often lose that, right? Even though we're manipulating things that people already know and they, you know, everyone's seen a ball pit before in the yeah. back of a, you know, a fast food restaurant. Um, but it's about the reduction in color and the scale. Hmm. And, and you mentioned that, you know, there is sort of like a, a distinction between what you do in galleries and snarkitecture, which is more of the commercial arm of things. How does the process differ between the two? Is there like a, what's your conversation with? I would actually, I wouldn't say that it's more commercial necessarily because I think in, in the world of architecture, architecture is considered this like bizarre anomaly. Like right. we don't really make architecture. We don't really make art. It is avant-garde it, still. It's, it's, it's impossible to place. Right. Yeah. And I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but I've always had the problem where, you know, in the art world, people don't, people think I'm an architect or, or filmmaker in architecture. I'm an artist in when I make film, they think I'm a visual artist. Yeah. And I don't really fit into any of these um, areas, holes. but in architecture, I would say um, to distinguish it from my studio, I make things that um, don't have a specific meaning or purpose, right? In architecture, make things that have a function or they, they, they have a utility behind them. And you may say that art does have a purpose or, or a function, but it, it's not specific. When architecture makes, you know, this coaster that we designed that's sitting here on the table, it's obvious what it's for, right? right. Um, and I think that's really the distinction is that the, the, um, the function is specific to the object. And, and what's the process like when you're working with like a client, say with architecture? what's the conversation like? Like what's the, what is the conversation with Ronnie Feig about a kith store like? How do you get that concept from sketchbook to reality? I mean, it's changed drastically over time. And I think, you know, as, as kith has grown and as Ronnie has um, sort of expanded, in the beginning it was all of us sort of figuring out what is the, what is the kith experience look and feel like? Um, and I think, you know, Ronnie knew exactly what he wanted in terms of the concept and, and what the experience would be, but what that would look like and feel like and smell like, and, you know, the sound and everything about that was something that we've discovered over time and we've been refining it, uh, you know, a lot. We started with the, the Bleecker store, we expanded to the Brooklyn store, which was a, a you know, much different experience. Treats was added there. Um, we're working on, on a new, uh, project here, a massive project here for him, um, in New York. And each time we're able to kind of, you know, alter things that we didn't feel were entirely successful or, or, or really just refine things and, and add new experience. He's one of the, um, most, I would say satisfying clients for me to work with. He's also a friend, obviously, but I will there are things that I will argue and say to him that I wouldn't to other people, to, to other clients, um, because I know, you know, if I feel strongly about something, I'm going to, you know, stand up and, and scream at him about it. And until he, he, um, sort of either comes over to my society and, and says yes, or he essentially like succumbs to it. I think he, I think at a certain point he, um, he respects that we, we understand space and we understand um, experience about, you know, architecture is really about the manipulation of experience and space. And 
that's not what Ronnie does. Ronnie manipulates, um, you know, uh, in some ways he, he actually is a, a kind of, um, an artist in a way in, in that he takes things that we also know, you know, all of these collaborations that he's done with vintage brands and Coke and, um, he reinvents them, right? He, he's manipulating them for new purpose. And this is really what, um, what I do also as an artist. Yeah, I think there's a lot of tapping into the same vein of like nostalgia, memory, like kind of like shared experiences. Yes. And also probably like sneaker silhouettes the same way that you were saying, like you, you, you remembered the... Adidas well, I've learned movie. a lot from him about that because I, I don't think that... Um, I mean, I certainly had, you know, my collection, but it's, uh, it's very different now from what it was five years ago when we first started working together. Yeah, I think your mail room kind of changes shape over yes. time with that. And I, I read somewhere, I heard somewhere that um, you, you went to Cooper Union in the yeah. city, but you also said that most of the important things you learned about the art world were like extracurricular or outside of the classroom, I think, or something to that effect, right? Yeah, I mean, I... I went to school here in New York. I graduated from Cooper in 2003, and I actually returned to Miami after that and started a, an exhibition space with some friends of mine that was in like a, an old house that we gutted and essentially built a gallery in it. Um, and in school, I don't think that mo most of the, the sort of material things that I work on now, um, all of the casting techniques, all of the painting techniques, those are not necessarily things that I learned in school. Right. but what I did learn in school was how to manipulate material to have meaning mm -hmm. or to have potential meanings, right? Um, and how to think about what um, the manipulation of materials uh, can convey. And I think that was the kind of um, the core of my education there. Um, I learned all of the basics of casting and painting from there that I've built off of, but most of the things that I produce here in the studio um, the techniques for them didn't really exist. I had to, <laughs> to reach out. I, I had to create it, right? There's no, there's no, um, existing technique for casting crystal or volcanic ash or some of the more exotic, uh, materials that I work with. Right. I mean, my, that kind of answers the basic question, but it was more or less like, you know, do you believe that art school is necessary or like a prerequisite or is it just kind of, cause like you said, everything you, I've had a lot of people um, ask me specifically about graduate school, which I, th I happen to think is a complete waste of time and, mo and money. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, this is something that, um, that Werner Herzog, the, the, um, uh, director has said, but you would gain more from either working for, uh, for free for someone that you respect or just walking from Moscow to Paris um, than you would from two years in art school, uh, in, in graduate school. I think undergraduate art school, at least in the United States, it, it's sort of consistent across the board and it's right. really about finding the, the artists who are uh, professors who you're interested in, in how and what they make um, and, and finding, really about finding mentors to, to study under. And I did that in, in school, and I continued to do that after school, um, working under people like Merce Cunningham, and I you know, was able to spend time with Robert Rauschenberg and um, people that were kind of legends to me 
And I've continued to do that, um, you know, up to this day by working with people that I respect. Um, I may be working with them, but I'm still learning from them. Right. And, and I wanted to go back to when you mentioned right after graduation or when you finished school, you came back to Miami, right? Yes. Well, and what was that scene like? Because like you mentioned, it seemed like it was a very like DIY kind of like... It was very different from how it is now with Art Basel and all of that. Um, there was a moment in time where the art fair was new and having a studio there as an artist, when people came in December, they would come and see studios and they would come and, and visit artists who are from there. And that's how I met Emmanuel Periton, who has been my gallerist since really since 2003. Um, but it's very different now. You know, the, the, the art scene there I think is, um, struggling because of this yearly event that focuses, yeah, it kind of focuses all the attention. Um, and there's so much going on during that week that it's difficult for people to actually step outside and go see, um, the work of artists. So, I mean, I would say I was extremely lucky to be in that moment, um, of time there when, when that scenario existed. And, and you mentioned the relationship that you have with Emmanuel. How important is, is an artist's relationship with like a, a gallerist, whether they're super established? Like how do you go about building a relationship like that, especially for someone that may have just graduated from art school? I mean, I would say a lot of it had to do with the fact that we made our own space. Um, he happened to be in Miami and asked some collectors and the director of the museum what he should go see. And we had this space that, you know, was locally making, you know, a little bit of an impact. And so he came to see us. Um, but I think Emmanuel is very different from a lot of um, other gallerists that I've come across in, in today's age. And he, I think he's much more similar to, you know, these sort of legendary dealers like Leo Castelli from um, back in the day who really had a close relationship with artists. You know, we're not that far apart in age. Um, and he, when he started the gallery, or when I first started working with him, he was my age, the, the age that I am now. So when I think back to that moment, you know, 15 years ago, it's such an odd um, it's difficult for me to see from his perspective what was so different about what I was making at that moment in time versus the thousands of other artists that he certainly came across. Um, I think part of it is that he looks not at what he thinks is being made in that moment, but where this artist will go in the future and which directions they can take. Um, and at that point, he had already started working, you know, he had been working for years with Takashi and um, Maurizio Catalan and these artists that at that moment in time were sort of defining what was happening globally. Yeah, especially in like a pop art sense, because I feel like, um, I, I think Takashi Studio is not that far from here either, right? One of them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the New York branch is, I think, three blocks in one of these directions. It's, it's close, yeah. Yeah, and it, and it seems like that, that, that entire art community, like the pop art guys that are doing all of this now are very closely knit, right? Do you have like a strong relationship with those guys or is it? I mean, I know all of them. Um, I mean, I think just getting back to the relationship with Emmanuel, part of the, the thing that is so um, 
important in in the relationship with a dealer is about um, trusting them, right? To take uh, to take the work to the right place to support works when um, you know there's no commercial viability of them, and he's. He supported projects that I wanted to do, in, in, including museum exhibitions and other things that, you know, at the at the time they were a bit, um, I don't know, a bit crazy, you know, to to to, to support. Um, but he's he's somebody who's certainly willing to take uh, the risk, and when he gives advice about about work, whether it's about how it may be interpreted, the materials of it, um, I'm listening, you know, yeah, which. I would say is not necessarily the case um, from all of the other people that I've come across in the art world. And and so to go back to the Hourglass film for a minute and to talk about a lot of what you're working on here in the studio is kind of stuff that you, you mentioned elsewhere that won't be seen for years. And Hourglass has this idea of playing with time and kind of like seeing a project on the wall where it isn't just yet. Is that sort of like a constant thing for you is like is is time like your only deadline more or less i mean i always want to see things as soon as i've thought of them i want them to exist in the world Mm -hmm. Um, but the reality of um, manipulation of materials just doesn't um, doesn't marry to that so a lot of the things that you know people are seeing today are things that i started two or three years ago and have either through their material taken this amount of time or they were planned for exhibitions that are uh, that are planned for this fall. Um, most of the stuff that's in the studio now is for uh, exhibitions that are in 2018 and 19 and, and beyond. beyond. Um, and some of it at this stage is just experiments with, with new things. Um, but those are also things that occasionally I will share, you know, on, on my Instagram or, or other social media channels, just in terms of like what I'm thinking about um, and, and how I arrive at these these exhibitions two years later, you know, people can look back and sort of see where the, where the origin of those were. Wow. That's, and so you've, you've planned out your schedule two, three years in advance and you've got movies, like you said, you've got films coming down the pipeline is, I mean, is it hard? Do you ever feel spread out thin amongst all of these projects at one time? Or is it kind of like at, at this point of view, multitask or what's the what's the method to handling the madness because it does seem like there's a lot going on one of the most important things that i learned early on was that the things that i say no to are almost as important as the things that i accept to do um and there's a lot of projects that i just can't take on that i would love to um in some cases but um you know i have my team here and it's a very well you know uh, functioning kind of machine. Uh, and I, I also keep things at a different time scale. So there are things that I work on that, uh, are shorter in time span and they keep things moving through the studio and keep ideas moving at a different pace. Um, it can be frustrating to be working on exhibitions that are not happening till 2019. And, you know, each time that I arrive at an exhibition, I'm like, man, I, we started talking about this in like 2014 and yeah. now, now, you know, when, when you think about where you're going to be in the future at that moment, it's very hard to fathom everything that, you know, that will be happening around that. But I suppose it's also why like in Hourglass, it's like when they ask you questions the night of the premiere where it's like, what, 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 what are we dealing with here tonight? 
And it's kind of like, I mean, if you had asked me that two years ago, I might have had a much sharper question or answer ready for you. Mm -hmm. And so does it feel like you're like rehashing or is it rehearsed? I don't know. I mean, that was all scripted, but you know, there, there does tend to be, um, certainly, uh, in, in interviews, um, there are topics that come up over and over again, right, about the work. And uh, I want to find many ways to, to talk about these things, right, so that um, people can understand them really fully in depth. Uh, I tend sometimes to, um, to get into a zone where I'm talking about things in a particular way and, uh, you know, film and exploring these other mediums allows me different channels to talk about similar ideas. Right. So you could use like a different vocabulary instead of. Exactly. It's like a different language. Literally. I can, I, I may be um, talking about time in the film works. I may be talking about time in the sculptural works, but it's a different um, sort of execution of that idea. Yeah. And I think that the way that like the way that you play with gallery space when you're doing studio work versus the architecture stuff mm -hmm. is pretty distinct as well. Mm -hmm. Like the, the one piece with the, the human shaped hole knocked through all of the walls. Right. Right. Like that, that versus say walking to a Kith store and seeing, I don't know how many air force ones are on the ceiling, right. but that kind of like, there's definitely like a distinct, you can feel, I guess, sort of a different approach to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I mean, one of my, our recurring questions, something that we always try to ask people is more or less like words of wisdom, kind of like a, if you had to give advice to a 13 year old version of yourself looking to get into this, what, what kind of advice would you give that past Daniel from the hourglass films? If you could, if you had to kind of offer him the sagely advice of Daniel today. I mean, one of the things that I've sort of come to realize over time is, especially when you're studying in school, there are people that um, you may be around who have a can have a huge influence, right, on your your way of thinking. And oftentimes, I think, as an artist, when you're in school, there are particular um, types of work that you may like, that you may be interested in, that may not be necessarily what you should be working on or what you may be good at working on. And I think one of the largest things that um, I've, it's taken me, you know, 15 years to get to this point, but is about trusting my own instinct and uh, not always knowing in the beginning where I'm going to arrive. Um, but it's this, it's this sense of, um, of really kind of, trusting that even though you may not know where something is going to go that the direction that you're heading will sort of get you there i don't know if that's like an eloquent way of saying it no i, I think um, that I, th I like the point of like making a distinction between like admiring someone and kind of like replicating them or imitating them as well yeah i think that's a pitfall that a lot of younger people have is though certainly and when you're in school part of the thing is to is to imitate in order to learn how something is made and this is, these, these are actually exercises that you will go through um, in, in your studies. Um, it's, it's really more about, there are, there are certain types of artists that I greatly admire and respect. Um, I could never make work like that. It doesn't fit into my way of thinking. And I think when you're developing the sort of 
direction that you're going to go, it's difficult in the beginning to distinguish between those two ideas. Yeah. Right. What you like and what you should, what you like and, and really what um, you can make. Right. Yeah. I, I think that that's sort of what initially, I mean, it's funny. My first ever post written on Hypebeast was about a future Relic announcement. Okay. Yeah. So it's like a weird full circle moment. But I think that one of the things that always struck me was that it's like, that it's, that's your rendition of a ready-made. Like you didn't copy a ready-made, mm -hmm. but you had to offer your take on what it was. Like here's clearly something that has meaning to you both as a person and as an artist, but you did it through your own manufacturing process, like you right. said, through the use of semi-precious stone, and the end product is something that cannot be mistaken for like, you know, like a urinal that's set on its side. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Right. And there's got to be, I, I don't know, I always found that to be kind of like one of the more compelling things was that you, def you definitely did. You can see the DNA, you can see the lineage, but then there's like a genome split where you go off on your own. Yeah. It's tough to get there. And I think the difficult thing is um, there's not really any clear um, roadmap for it, right? You have to make it. Yeah. That's, that's probably the, the strongest piece of advice to end on actually is just go make it make it yeah. yeah all right thank you so much Dan. yeah thank my you pleasure time, thank man. you that was great absolutely hey.